That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. Need advice? Want to know what a pro would say? Get all the answers you need from professionals in this Fox 4 podcast. Ask the Experts. Hi, I'm Carrie Wickersham. Welcome to this edition of Ask the Experts. Today, we are inside the Stonehenge exhibit in Union Station, and I am with Julian Thomas. He is an, arch- or an uh, archaeologist who basically has helped excavate some of Stonehenge. There's a picture of you doing that about 12 years ago or so behind you. But um, tell me, first of all, about the very first time when you were a little boy and you saw Stonehenge. Well, it is a monument that has always fascinated me. And certainly my parents took me both to Stonehenge and to Avebury when I was very small indeed. And I think it must have made quite an impression. Back in those days, Stonehenge wasn't cordoned off. You could actually go up and touch the stones. And I think I remember as a three or four-year-old sitting on the stones. And ever since then, there's been this question what is this place about? Why is it here? Who put it there? And I've really spent much of my professional life asking those kinds of questions. To me, that's extraordinary. That as a three or four year old boy, there must have been something planted in you that lasted your whole life. And people seem to have experiences at Stonehenge that are almost unexplainable, which adds to all of the mystery. Um, as you were excavating, let's just get right into this sure, before we get into absolutely. the history. Let's, as you were excavating, you call it vibrant... Wi- ah, yes. Well, there's a whole series of different theories uh, about the meaning of Stonehenge. Our project, the Stonehenge Riverside Project, which was running between 2004 and 2009, uh, tries to put Stonehenge into both a chronological context and a geographical context, looking at the landscape as a whole. But one of the things that we collectively have talked about is the relationship between Stonehenge and death, uh, the way that in its earlier phases it's being used as a kind of a cemetery. There are cremated burials being introduced into the ground beside the, the first set of stones, the blue stones. And we like the idea that it's to do with death, ancestry, venerating the past generations and so on but there's a competing story which says that back in the medieval period Geoffrey of Monmouth believed that the stones had been brought to Stonehenge by Merlin and that there's a strong story he's telling as well about the efficacious character of the stones the way that they may uh, have had curative properties and so some of the burials that are being introduced into barrows around Stonehenge seem to be deformed in some ways and it's possible that perhaps people believed that the the stones could cure them. Now I quite like that to the extent that it's saying that the stones are more than just raw material, they're more than just building blocks, they're a material that has power, that has efficacy, that can do things and in the social sciences at the moment people talk about this idea of vibrant matter the idea that materials are resonant, that materials do things 
that materials almost have a kind of an agency of themselves. And I think it's very likely that back in the Neolithic, these people did not imagine that they were just dealing with the equivalent of blocks or bricks, that the stones themselves had power. Now for us, maybe those blue stones were representative of the ancestors that they were stood alongside, or maybe they actually embodied the power of those ancestors. Because you don't know that much about the ceremonies. I mean, what you found are bone fragments that have been cremated of hundreds of people from the Yes, well, because the whole of Stonehenge has not been excavated, we're extrapolating to yeah. say, well, maybe there's hundreds of people there. Okay. Certainly there's, there's a lot of people there. They're being introduced into the ground over more than 100 years, perhaps a couple of hundred years. So we're not dealing with an entire community. We're dealing with a trickle of people being buried every, every few years. They're both men and women, but there are fewer children. It's probably likely that we're dealing with important people, maybe important people from the immediate hinterland of Stonehenge, but maybe because we know so many things and so many materials are being brought to Stonehenge from far afield, maybe this is a, a place where being buried is a real honour, and maybe these are important people, maybe nobility they're leaders, or, uh, nobility, leaders, maybe holy people, maybe mystics, uh, maybe wise women, who knows, but certainly people who are special and marked out in some way. Hmm. If you go back to the very earliest history right. that we know, what now looks like Stonehenge didn't always look like the Stonehenge we know now, but the very earliest, how did ancient civilizations even get stones that big, upright? Right, and, and well, that we don't know directly from the evidence. Uh, we, we have to do things like experimental archeology, span which enable us to say, well, how would you dress a sarsen stone using stone walls and how would you drag these stones how would you, you know, just put a lot of people on ropes uh, and how many people do you need do you use rollers or do you use sledges uh, all of those things we can kind of work out and then how do you get them upright uh, do you put them onto some kind of ramp or do you build up platforms underneath them those are the kinds of, of possibilities that are, are open to us. What you do know is these stones were probably dragged sure. up to 150 miles? Well, yes. The, the, the thing that we, we always have to remind people about Stonehenge is that there are two kinds of stones that come from two different locations. The Stonehenge that we think of as Stonehenge is the Stonehenge that has the trilithons of sarsen stone, which is a kind of uh, sandstone that's found in the chalk of Wiltshire, so they're relatively local. They're the big stones that have been dragged maybe 20 miles or so from, from the Marlborough Downs up north of Stonehenge. But the blue stones, which form part of the first phase of Stonehenge, around about 3000 BC, have come all the way from quarries in the west of Wales. So what is remarkable there is logistics, the organization, the social process as much as anything. So it's not just the technological aspect it's how do you mobilize and motivate people on that kind of scale to bring dozens of stones over enormous distances so you know, i'd like to emphasize the social aspect as well as the, the technological 
Well, and it's not only the how. How did sure. ancient civilizations... Yeah. But why did they do it? Because yeah. it is so intentional, the way it's set yeah. around the sun Absolutely. and the moon. So why do you think they did it? Well, it may not be the case that the reasons why people are doing what they're doing are consistent through the long period that we're dealing with. We're now stood in the part of the exhibition that deals with the Stonehenge landscape before Stonehenge. And we know that partly because there are a series of periglacial runnels that line up with uh, the solstitial sunrise, it's a special place that would have been recognized as such long, long before Stonehenge was there. And we know that it's a place that hunters and gatherers were gathering in large numbers. We know that at Blickmead, just down the road from Stonehenge, uh, there's a place where people were gathering and eating huge wild cattle over many, many generations. We know that in what was the car park of Stonehenge back in the well, 1950s, 1960s, there are a series of pine post holes. Uh, so there are big posts that were being erected uh, in the Mesolithic thousands of years before Stonehenge. So this is a landscape that has already acquired uh, a special character. It's perhaps even already a sacred place even before Stonehenge is constructed. When Stonehenge is constructed, it's a bank and a ditch, and it's then a ring of these blue stones from Wales, and it's a place of burial. Certainly, as I've just been saying, the, the dead are being cremated and brought to that site, but then 500 years later, there's a massive transformation. That is when the, uh, the sarsons are brought in, they're worked, so this becomes a monument quite unlike anything in Europe. Uh, it's got these trilithons and these lintels. It's architecturally absolutely unique. And that moment is a moment when the significance of Stonehenge changes. It's already important, but now you change it by introducing a new kind of architecture. At that time, we know that as Stonehenge is being constructed, there's another site up the river uh, up the River Avon at Durrington Walls, where people are gathering in huge numbers. Uh, we know that Stonehenge, we think, is a place that may be to do with ancestors and the dead, but this is a place for gatherings of the living, particularly at midwinter, where colossal quantities of meat are being consumed. We've got these animal bones, particularly of pig, but also of cattle. What is interesting about those pigs and cattle is the isotopes in their teeth are telling us that these animals are being herded from colossal distances away, certainly from Wales, possibly from um, Devon and Cornwall, and perhaps even from the Lake District and Scotland. If those animals are being brought, then people are coming too. And that is telling you that the people who are building Stonehenge are coming from all over Britain. They're no. migrating kind of to come together yeah, for this event. Absolutely. I think what stuns me um, most when I look at this whole thing is it, it I think in the world today we tend to think of ancient cultures as ignorant. Yeah. You know, because of some of their practices. Sure. But you had architects and you had stonemasons and crafters and of course laborers, but the design Sure, surely did not indicate ignorance. Surely not. And it's more than that because 
it's logistics, it's organization, it's feeding those people. It's given that you're dealing with societies that are not states, that don't have institutions, how is it that you inspire those people to take part in those acts and to keep coming back year on year to construct this? So think about the, the personal skills, if you like, the oratory, the ability to, to say, we've got to do this. And what they're doing is they're re-engineering their societies right. by creating a new unity in building this enormous monument. Certainly some visionaries yeah, involved in absolutely. this. Now, we want to just move forward a little Surely. bit to the last 20 years and your excavation and technology sure. that's come into play that's really uncovered some new evidence with maybe old artifacts. Absolutely. Yeah. So we were excavating for a period of years. We were getting lots of new evidence, particularly from Durrington Walls, where we did very large excavations. Lots of animal bones, lots of pottery, lots of stone tools. And we were using a whole series of new methodologies, new techniques to go with that. Uh, so we have, we've already talked about the isotopes that are coming out of the teeth of cattle and pigs, but also residues on pottery. So even though these pots are four and a half thousand years old, there are traces of the materials that are being kept in the pots. The fats sometimes survive, and we know that those pots have sometimes been used for pig meat because mm -hmm. there's pig fat actually yeah. in the, the matrix of the pottery, and sometimes too there's cattle milk. And that is interesting because it's not necessarily in the same locations that they're eating and drinking those different foods. So. If we're talking about feasts, we may be talking about what the anthropologists call a diacritical feast, which is to say a feast where what you eat and who you eat it alongside is saying something about who you are. Significant. Something significant. So maybe those who consume pig and those who consume cattle are different. So we're not dealing with a society that has a cuisine. We're not dealing with very fancy food. Neolithic feasting is about meat and a lot of it, but still maybe there's a difference between the large numbers of people who are able to eat pig and the maybe slightly smaller number of people who are eating cattle meat. Maybe that's saying something about your status and your identity. So there's really interesting things going on at Stonehenge and Durrington Walls in the late Neolithic, where on the one hand, you're drawing people together and creating social solidarity amongst groups that may be otherwise dispersed and quite small scale, but at the same time as creating that solidarity, you're also creating gradations and distinctions between different members of those communities. I think that's amazing. Now, there are so many theories because you have these little pieces of evidence on all of this. Sure. There are so many theories, and one of the theories, of course, is aliens sure. put the whole thing down. Um, I know that's not something you fully subscribe to. Absolutely. But what's your take on that? Why do some people, the only explanation for Stonehenge is alien involvement? Well, I think Stonehenge is so unique there's nothing else like it. We, we have nothing to compare it with. We don't have any analogy. And it sits there on Salisbury Plain, just almost begging us to interpret it. And so if it's something that is out of, our, out of the ordinary, something that doesn't have a ready explanation, you come up with something. Back in the medieval era, uh, Geoffrey of Monmouth said, 
look, it couldn't have been people who possibly put these stones up, so Merlin the magician must have levitated these stones by magic at the behest of King Arthur. Uh, <laughs> Which is the best guess back then. Yeah. Merlin was the most powerful. Like, But it, it's the same principle. Right. If not Merlin, why not aliens? Right. And you know, in, in all of these stories, there's a grain of truth because certainly Stonehenge is connected with the heavenly bodies. Uh, it's, it's a place that becomes the center of the world. It's the Axis Mundi, but it's connected to the heavens as well. So it's connected to the midsummer sunrise, it's connected to the midwinter solstice. Part of that is about the way in which you coordinate activity. If you're dealing with dispersed populations, it's very important not just to know where to go for special events, but it's important to know where, when to be there. So you're coordinating gathering and you're having events that are of spiritual importance as well as just social importance. And all of that is being written into the monument. So I think it, it's, it's inevitable that we, in our ignorance, come to that monument and say, what's it about? Well, clearly it's got to be about the sun and the moon, and it's got to be, well, aliens, maybe. Well, the supernatural, the sure, spiritual, absolutely. something like that, because we don't have yeah, a yeah, realistic yeah. explanation and, for it. And that's really been the story of the interpretation of Stonehenge right through the ages that every society and every segment of every society, uh, particularly in Britain, because it's a monument that's become bound up with Britishness, but it's also bound up with very different notions of what it is to be British. So for William Blake, for instance, he had an idea about Britain, England, Albion as a centre of a, a spiritual renaissance. And you know, if you look at his works, he represents the Stonehenge Trilithon again and again in his idea of Druidry as bound up with a, a pure religion which could uh, bring the fallen world back to a, a state of purity. Uh, so the different groups of people always impose on Stonehenge because it's a blank canvas, because we can make it what we, we want. Right. When I look at that picture of you years ago, um, right there, much after you were four years old. Yes, on absolutely. The, um, digging right there. Did you ever feel any of that vibrant matter, any of that sense of history while you were there digging in that just ancient dirt and stone? What I think I felt was a series of little epiphanies. Um, once when I was digging at the Southern Circle at Durrington Walls, which is one of the great, uh, one of the great features, one of the great sites of British archaeology, I would go onto site each day and think, I'm digging this site, how wonderful. Here, um, that's a picture of me digging the Great Cursus, which is the largest monument in the World Heritage Site of, of, of uh, Stonehenge. It's immediately to the north of Stonehenge. It's massively larger than Stonehenge, and it's 500 years earlier than Stonehenge. So again, you're, you're aware of a certain responsibility and just a, aware of how privileged you are to have the opportunity to work on these sites. Especially because you made new little discoveries every day. We made day. new discoveries. What, what were you digging up? So if you look at that, that picture there, we're at the terminal end of this linear monument, the, the Stonehenge Cursus. Um, that site had never been properly dated before. There was a piece of antler that had given a radiocarbon date 
uh, that had been recovered back in the 1940s, 1950s, uh, and that was a very a relatively recent date, and we thought that was wrong. Uh, we were lucky enough to get a piece of one of the antler picks that had been used in order to dig the ditch, and that gave us our radiocarbon date of around about 3,500 BC and dated the Stone Age Cursus. So I think the, the, the whole beauty of archaeology, what makes it so exciting as a subject, is that you're constantly creating new knowledge. It's not all being written down. It's constantly being changed and added to, and the story changes, the narrative changes. And that, I think, is what is special about this exhibition, that if you come here and see the exhibition, you're not seeing the same old story. You're seeing a new story uh, a new narrative for Stonehenge and its landscape. So again, for instance, uh, our project did a very small excavation at Stonehenge itself, re-excavating one of the Albury holes, uh, and then our colleagues Tim Darvel and Jeff Wainwright did a very small excavation at the centre of Stonehenge. Um, to some extent, quite small parts of the story of the archaeological investigation of Stonehenge, but out of those two tiny excavations, came a whole series of new radiocarbon dates which changed the chronology of Stonehenge. And so uh, my colleague, Mike Parker Pearson and others were able to publish a new chronology. So when you come here and you look at the models that have been made, they're different from the reconstructions of Stonehenge that would have been made 10 or 20 years ago because the sequence has changed. We now have a much more precise, fine-grained chronology for the Stonehenge Monument itself. Well, and there's so much more to discover about Absolutely. Stonehenge, and, and more technologies may reveal even more as we go through that. Yeah. If I had to ask you, what's the one thing you wish you knew definitively about Stonehenge? Big question. Wow. What would it be? What do you really wish you knew? I suppose it's always the things you never can know that you would like to know. So it, it's, it's not just could I excavate something and you know, that would give me the answer? I'd like to know what it was actually like to be at Durrington Wars during one of those feasts. Or I'd like to know what it was like to enter Stonehenge at midsummer 2500 BC. Uh, and we will never, we'll never know those things. But maybe it, it's the fact that there is always more to know that makes it so exciting. I think when we're doing archaeology, it's not always just about answering the questions. It's making the mysteries more profound. Mm -hmm. Well, and I think you are so lucky to be one of the archaeologists on a rung and a ladder that each time brings us a little bit higher yeah, in our knowledge about Stonehenge. And we are so lucky that you were here this morning and willing to talk to us um, and, and give us a little bit of just supplemental knowledge about this. And as, as close as Stonehenge as you're going to get anywhere in the United States is right here in Kansas City through September. Uh, this exhibit is open and it will walk you from beginning to where we are right now in terms of knowledge and artifacts and uh, legend and lore and everything about Stonehenge. So it's a fascinating exhibit that you don't want to miss. I'm Carrie Wickersham. Thanks for joining us on this edition of Ask the Experts. <laughs>